Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Adam. Uh, this is, we are, you know, usually this is behind the scene for uncertain things, which you're now welcome to. Um, welcome behind the curtain. Uh, we usually record our introduction like um, seven months after recording the interview. <laughs> after we've gotten our shit together enough to, to, to put it together. Yes. Uh, um, and yeah, we, by which point we mostly forgot what the interview was about. So we're kind of winging it, hoping that our introduction in some way captures any verisimilitude of the actual interview. And you'll have to tell us whether that actually works or not because we never listen to our interviews. <laughs> but this time we realized that we can be professional. We can actually record the introduction immediately after the interview. <laughs> so you're witnessing the next stage of uncertain things. I don't know if it was that we realized we could be professional. I think something about our conversation with Yasha was like, let's debrief, debrief this immediately. Right. <laughs> Which is ironic because we came into it incredibly not energized. So tribute to Yasha for pepping <laughs> right. us up for this. Y yes, Vanessa suffers from the germ of the COVIDs. I have come down with the COVIDs. And yes. Adam suffers from the germ of, of greed and real estate development. Oh, I was going to say overindulging in alcohol, but oh. sure, that too. <laughs> well, today we have Yasha Monk, who yes. is a political theorist and a writer for The Atlantic, who, who's mm -hmm. author of the new book, The Great Experiment. Why diverse democracies fall apart and how they can endure. So it's... So, I, I mean, if you're into uncertain things and the stuff that we talk about, you should definitely read it. It's all, almost like a compendium to David French's Divided We Fall in thinking about what is the social science of diversity in democracies and where it could lead to total destruction and uh, dissolution of unity and state and where it could be actually propped up for, for growth, um, prosperity, variety of colors and flavors and ideas. Actually, you're Dom, you're making me think we should have an Uncertain Things bookshelf or something where people can, because like this, this is one among the books, I think also Martin Gurry's book, Revolt of the Public, that are just so Uncertain Thingsy. And I feel like people should, if if you don't read all of the books of our guests, which, you know, shame on you, but, <laughs> but if you don't, you should at least pick up these three and have conversations about these three because they're very right. uncertain things of the moment. Timely, as we tell Yasha. Right. Um, timely and podly. Mm -hmm. So... I don't think it requires a lot of introduction because we do get into the to the meat of it very quickly. But the question that we are we are trying to get at is what is the type of diversity that we are even talking about? And to what extent does a democracy that is liberal, which means it promises to guarantee the freedom of its individual members, can actually tolerate group divisions, whether those mm -hmm. groups are divided by nationality, ethnicity, race, how much can a state that is focused on the rights of individual can accommodate the differences of these groups to sustain themselves, to maintain their identity, and, but also to interact with each other in a way that isn't uh, 
does not lead to civil war, basically. <laughs> not And not just small groups. I mean, because you can, a lot of what Yash is talking about is applicable to the United States today, in which we're talking about kind of broader partisan divides uh, within the country too. So it's, it, it's, it is like minority majority, but it doesn't have to necessarily be within small ethnic groups. First of all, the whole the whole problem of of trying to strike a line between left and right sometimes gets incredibly difficult because partisan people make a lot of noises and then it's so difficult to actually get at what are we even arguing about anymore. And Yasha makes a very specific and strong point that challenges the the reactionary elements on the right, the anti-diversity, what he calls the roll back the clock people on the right, the Sorabamaris that are hoping to use politics to establish cultural hegemony in the United States, but also challenging the, um, let's call it radical fragmentation tendencies on the left, on the intellectual left, where identity becomes the sole point of focus which he also points out could be pernicious to liberal democracies, whether in the form of fragmentation or entrenched blood feuds or even anarchy. By the way, I really liked the way you opened that statement. You said partisan people make a lot of noises. I feel like if there were a a compendium of poetry (laughs) to accompany (laughs) the great experiment, that would be the title. Um, maybe, maybe spoken word, <laughs> but yeah, uh, no, I think, I think we, we get into that pretty quickly with Yasha. It's really, it's really fascinating the way that his study of pol- political systems throughout history and the lessons learned and how we can apply those to the United States today. And this question of ossification of identity is a really interesting one that we talk about a lot in the American context, which I think is pretty fascinating. Uh, one part that of our conversation that I also found quite interesting was we we started to dive into the the kind of Hispanic question and why Hispanics are a great example of the way <laughs> the way that uh, left elites think about race and um, and politics and how they intersect just totally doesn't map on to reality. And I'm excited to talk about this more with our next guest, which is Angel Eduardo. And I think we're going to have a really like continued fascinating conversation on that. Oh topic, yeah, which I'm looking forward to. Good point. We also talked with Yasha about whether there's a danger of political association becoming its own form of divisionist identity. And for the last about quarter of our conversation, I basically uh, did the unthinkable and tried to push back against Yasha's defense of liberal democracy. You know, that thing of which I'm usually the booster of boosters. Um, so that's fun. Here's to the cognitive dissonance. So we yes. are on certain things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com. Yeah. And wait, one more shout out before we get to Yasha, though. Oh, mm. we have a we have an uncertain things listener uh. that we have to shout out because she literally recognized Adam by his voice in a New York City establishment and said, "Are you Adam of uncertain?" Things. And she, so if, and asked and asked my friend who was not Vanessa. She was <laughs> she was my one friend who's not Vanessa. Are you Vanessa? And for and I wasn't, and, but <laughs> and, and, and it wasn't. Could have been. It could have been me. So totally uh, shout out to you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a supporter. So we are uncertain.substack.com. If you want to support us, share us with your friends and enemies. 
And if you really, really want to support us, you can drop the schmeckles on the Substack. We also have the inscrutable newsletter. It's a section in our Substack. You can go in and sign up for that as well if you want to experience us through the written word. And aside from that, here we go. Yasha Monk. Yasha, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So uh, let's just, I mean, dive right in. Your new book, The Great Experiment, is, I I don't know, I I hate the word timely, but it's so (laughs) fucking timely because we... It's very timely. Very, (laughs) very timely. Um, It's just something that I think we've been kind of talking around... In, on our pod for a while, mm-hmm. and you did the, you know, you actually did the work to the hard, the work. hard work of making this argument that we were trying to explore uh, better. So let's let's first kind of do some um, some ground setting. Yeah, the, I mean the sub the subhead of your book is why diverse democracies fall apart now they can endure. So let's start with the you know the foundational question: What do we mean by diverse democracies? What kind of diversity? And why does it matter? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great starting point. So, look, um, you know, every society thinks of itself as diverse in certain kinds of ways, right? So today in the United States, the difference between Catholics and Protestants is not particularly salient. We don't think about it that much. We don't worry that there's going to be some deep conflict between Catholics and Protestants breaking out tomorrow. Um, but that was very different for, for much of the history of Europe. Um, that's different today still in Ireland and Northern Ireland. Right, so there's all kinds of different fault lines between different groups that that societies have had, but we've also seen throughout history that some of the most powerful fault lines, some of the things that have led to violent conflict, to civil war, to genocide, most often, is deep religious and deep ethnic differences. Right, so when somebody has a completely different religion from you, when somebody looks in a salient way different from you. Uh, clearly comes from a different cultural group. Um, those have historically been the moments when society has often gone very wrong in, in dangerous ways. And so what the great experiment is, what is unique about our situation, is to try to build democracies that are much more ethnically and religiously diverse than any others that have treated their citizens equally. So what we've had in the past is lots of pretty homogeneous societies and democracies, Germany, where I grew up uh, at the moment of the founding of its post-war democracy, had become very homogeneous because of the Holocaust, because of the expulsions of the first half of the 20th century, because of all of that bloodshed. Uh, the United States has always been diverse, of course, but was at the moment of its founding deeply unjust in a way that made it easier to run the country because you're saying, hey, those of us who have something to say are all part of the same group and the other people we're just excluding and dominating and enslaving and doing terrible things to. Today, we have a new and unprecedented situation, which is trying to build these deeply ethnically and religiously diverse democracies in a way that actually treats all of the members equally. And that's the challenge that I sort of try to figure out. Uh, So I think it's worth just spending one more second on this question, because it's worth understanding a point that you're um, making in your early chapters, which is basically that humans can generate differences around the most arbitrary lines any sort of category, essentially. Humans are just naturally predisposed to find differences and then develop group identity and loyalty around those differences, which also means hostility towards people who are different from you. That is just part of the human condition. That means that 
um, even in a group that you think is homogenous, over time, under very simple circumstances, can start fracturing along even the most random lines of difference and distinction. And the reason I think this matters is because there's this point that I often make about America's culture war, that so much of it seems silly and symbolic. Like, really? Is drag queen story hour the catalyst for a second civil war? But the point is that we seek differences and it doesn't matter how stupid they are. Yeah, absolutely. So so I tell this really fascinating story of a psychologist called Henry Teifel in the book. Um, now, Teifel um, you know, was born just after World War I in a small town in Poland. Um, he was born to a Jewish family, was not able to study in Poland because of a quota on the number of Jews who were allowed admission to universities at the time. So he enrolled uh, at the Sorbonne to study chemistry. And then within a year or two of him starting university, World War II broke up and he um, uh, volunteered for the French army as a soldier. He survived the war as a prisoner of war. So he was treated as a French prisoner of war rather than a Jew because of the Geneva Convention. Uh, you know, most of his family was killed. And after the war, he's, he, he thought, well, I really want to figure out, you know, what is it about groups that makes people do these terrible things? Why is it that people are willing to discriminate against outsiders in favor of the in-group in these extreme ways when this group psychology is activated? And there's a lot of research around that in the 50s and 60s, famous things like the Robbers Cave experiment, the Milgram experiment. Um, but Typhoon was saying, well, this all shows that groups are powerful. It doesn't show what makes groups powerful, right? So here's how I'm going to go about to study this. It was a really interesting force. He said, look, I'm going to create groups that are so silly and so pointless that their members are not possibly going to discriminate against outsiders. And then I'm going to keep adding little features to those groups to understand what is it that makes groups powerful? At what point do they cross the threshold from silly groups that don't really motivate the members to groups that make people behave in these discriminatory ways? And so he got a bunch of kids from the suburbs of Bristol into the lab and he showed them just a sort of scatter plot, a sheet of paper with, say, 150 dots on them. And he had them estimate and guess how many dots there are. And so some said 120 and some said 180. He said, great, I'm going to put you in the underestimators and the overestimators. Um, and then you'll have to play games where you can win prizes, you know, some cash. Uh, and it turns out that the members of the underestimators immediately discriminated against the members of the overestimators in this group and vice versa. So his attempt to create a group that is so silly that its members wouldn't discriminate against each other failed, right? It's called the minimum group paradigm. We are incredibly prone to forming groups, and the moment we formed groups, we're going to favor those who are members of them. Is, is the reverse also true, I guess, in that if it's incredibly easy for human beings to slip into group mentality, is it very difficult for us to revert out of group mentality? Yeah, so it's really difficult to revert out of group mentality. But what is relatively easy is to redraw the boundaries of groups. So let me tell you a second story. So there's a great story, a great study uh, about Southeastern Africa. Um, so this researcher goes to Malawi, and he talks to these two tribes there, to the Chewas and the Tumbukas. And he asks the Chewas, what do you think of the Tumbukas? And the Chewas have all these prejudices against Tumbukas. They're saying, you know, the Tumbukas, the wedding dances are wrong, and you know, the married couples, they go and live with a bride's family. That's really bizarre. They should live with a groom's family. 
And so he says, well, would you ever vote for a member of a Tumbuka tribe for political office? Would you ever marry one of them? He said, no, no, of course not. What are you talking about? He goes for Tumbukas and they have just the same prejudices. exactly the same thing in reverse. Their dances are all wrong. They go to live with a, with a, with a groom's family. That's crazy. They should live with a bride's family, etc. So he, so he could afford, this is, as journalists like to say at the time of the Civil War in Yugoslavia, an ancient hatred. These people have just always hated each other. They're always going to hate each other. That's just what they're like, nothing to be done, right? But instead, he went across the border to Zambia. Um, and this is an arbitrarily drawn colonial border, like so many of them, just on a map, you know. Um, he's like 10 miles away. It's really a very similar place. Uh, no salient differences. And he goes to a Chawa village and he asks him about, about Tumbukas. He says, yeah, you know, they have different customs that, you know, marriage chances are different and, and so on. But no, I like them. He said, oh, really? So would you marry uh, a member of a Tumbuka tribe? Would you, would you vote for one of them? Oh, yeah, sure, no problem. And he goes to a Tumbuka village in Zambia. Same story. They're really positive about Chawa. He's like, what explains this? Why, this is the name of the article, why are they allies in Malawi and the enemies in Zambia? It doesn't make any sense. Well, the answer is politics. So Malawi is a pretty small country, and Chawas and Tumbukas together make up the lion's share of the population. And so they both can hope to win the presidency and they're competing against each other. And they have politicians saying, these Tumbukas, they're terrible, don't trust them, they're our enemies. Right? In Zambia, um, it's a bigger country, and the share of the overall population of these two tribes is much smaller. And so they're political allies. And so their politicians are saying, hey, yeah, you know, the Tumbukas, you know, they're a little different from us, but hey, we should hold together because, the, you know, the tribes from, from Western Zambia, they're really different. We don't want them to win, right? So, um, you know, the, we're always going to be members of groups. Where we draw the boundaries between those groups and when that allows us to think of each other as allies and when that allows us to work together, that really depends on the kind of social and political conditions we're going to put in place. And so for me, one of the really important things is, how do we structure American society today in such a way that we don't get what we often talk about, but we don't get this fundamental clash between whites and people of color or between different kinds of demographic groups? Because it would be easy for that to happen, but that would be a real disaster. So the question is, how do we set up our politics, our culture, our education, our other institutions in such a way that we encourage cooperation rather than conflict? So uh, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but one of the kind of, I mean, the, the fundamental conclusion from this uh, study, if I remember correctly, by uh, Daniel Posner, his name, I think? Yeah, that's right. Um, is essentially that the, the possibility of political power capture is the thing that motivates or foments um, hostility, right? And, and cultural resentments. It's, it's the, the necessary condition to develop the race for obtaining naked power. So my question is, is that something that you can even hope to overcome at scale? Because the larger the scale we're dealing with, like, say, 300 million people in the United States, the more likely we are to see the emergence of new factions with their own competing but deep political ambitions. So you can always have power competition. You'll always have Democrats disliking Republicans and Republicans disliking Democrats. The question is... Do these political lines of conflicts also align neatly with all the other lines of conflicts we have in society? And particularly, 
does the conflict between Democrats and Republicans align with a conflict between whites and so-called people of color? So it's a convergence between political power and other forms of identity. So we're always going to have political competition that's always going to make people say, hey, I like the people in my team better, right? The question is, if we have all these different lines of conflict in society, that's easier to manage, right? So it used to be the case 50 years ago, for example, that I might be a Democrat and you might be a Republican, um, and that made us a little skeptical of each other. But we were perhaps also, as at that time most Americans were, uh, members of the same mainline church, right? So we're also members of the Methodist uh, church or whatever, right? So it's like, well, you know, Bob over there, I mean, he was for Republicans, which is kind of a little weird. But you know what? We go to church together and we're on a committee together at church and, you know, our kids play together and so we get along, right? Nowadays, the problem in American life often is that, you know, we live in different places, we have different educational backgrounds, we have different uh, racial backgrounds, uh, and we vote for different parties. And so then I say, hey, Bob is just different from me in every respect, and he's evil, you know, I don't share anything with him, he just hates me and hates what I want for in this country. And so I do think that, um, for that reason, when electoral competition is carried out along ethnic or racial lines, it becomes particularly dangerous. One of the things that I find quite interesting about the book's premise is you're essentially asking, how do we make diverse democracies that are successful, that don't fail, right? Um, but that premise under, has an underlying assumption, which is that diverse democracies are good in what we want, and I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just unpacking that assumption because it feels intuitive. It feels intuitive. Like, yeah, of course we want a diverse democracy. Who doesn't like diversity and democracy? Those are two words that go together quite well. Um, but you could make the counter argument, I suppose, that actually, no, we should go back to different forms in which it was more homogenous or splinter or something. So would you mind just kind of justifying why that is the, the central premise that you're you're building your book upon? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And and in a way, I, I'm not making an argument for diverse democracies, which is to say that there's some countries in the world today that uh, have pretty homogeneous democracies. And it's up for them to decide whether they want to keep that, right? So I think Japan and Bulgaria can make uh, democratic decisions legitimately about how much immigration they want. Now, if they don't want any immigration that has some very serious disadvantages. They're both depopulating countries and that presents real economic and social challenges. But if they say we'd rather depopulate than have a lot of newcomers come here uh, and we value our cultural homogeneity, you know, I, I'm not, you know, I don't think it's my place to tell voters in Japan or voters in Bulgaria how to live. That's fine. They can make their choice. The majority of democracies in the world today, and certainly the biggest, the most influential, the most populous democracies in the world, already are highly diverse. That is true of countries like Brazil, it's true of countries like India, it's true of countries like Nigeria, and it is obviously true of the major countries in Western Europe and North America. It's obviously true of the United States. So for us, we don't get to ask that abstract question because that boat has sailed, right? And so for us, the question is, do we want to go back to being more homogeneous or go back to having some form of racial domination? Or do we want to wake our diversity work? And there, the answer is very, very obvious. The only way to make America a more ethnically homogeneous country would be extreme forms of violence and conflict and civil war and genocide. I've studied enough of the history of diverse societies to know that that is a possibility. That might happen. It's happened before. It just would be a very terrible outcome. We could go back to saying, hey, some parts of the population just aren't treated equally at all, and 
uh, they're, they're, they're subordinated and, you know, the majority gets to tell them whatever they want. That might happen. That would be a deeply unjust outcome um, that I obviously find horrifying. And so for most democracies in the world, you know, the predicament is just such that we've got to make the diversity work um, if we want to have peaceful societies, if we don't want to fall apart in dramatic ways. Um, so, so in that sense, I don't think of it as an argument for diversity in the abstract. I think of, an, of it as an argument for how can societies and democracies that already are deeply diverse actually succeed. And, and that is the case for most democracies in the world today. Um, so let's talk about the, the, the potential paths for failure of uh, diverse democracies, which you enumerate. I think you list broadly three types. So I'd like to let you set this up and then I'll, I have a few questions. So what are the three main collapse paths for diverse democracies? So you want me to set this up and walk into your trap and then you'll have some mean questions. No, that sounds great. Um, so, um, <laughs> Adam's ready to pounce. <laughs> yeah, I, I, can, I, can, I, can, I can picture him. Um, <laughs> he's eager, he's eager. Um, so, so look, one form uh, of failure, one mode of failure is simply that the, the competition between different ethnic or religious groups is so strong, so extreme, that they can't agree on building a state together. So that has historically been the case in places with weak states, like Somalia, like Afghanistan, uh, where there's you know all of these different clans and tribes and groups, and they say, hang on a second, if we build a state together and you capture power, that might end really badly for me, so let's not do that. Um, and, and you pay a really heavy price for that. Because if you don't have a state uh, that is functional, then first of all, you have uh, endemic forms of civil war for most of your history. And then secondly, you don't manage to build roads. You don't have a public health system. You don't have good education. So you have really bad outcomes for the people living there, including shorter life expectancies and so on. Um, now, one kind of solution to this is for one group to capture power and impose its might on the others. It's forms of soft or more often hard domination in which one group is in charge and says, well, the other groups just have to do what we tell them. One of the most extreme examples of that is slavery in the United States, right? So it's white saying, hey, uh, we're going to tell this, this minority uh, what to do and we're going to make them work for our benefit, for our own purposes. So that's obviously a deeply unjust solution. It, 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 it solves some of the problems of what's called structured anarchy, because actually those states often end up being relatively affluent. They're able to uh, maintain a system of public order. They're able to um, you know, build roads and all of those things, but you know, at the unacceptable price of uh, uh, treating one group in a, in a deeply unjust and inhumane manner. Um, and so then there's a kind of third uh, solution which has been historically embraced by, by countries like Lebanon, uh, which I would call, so the first is called structured anarchy and the second is called domination, and the third is called uh, fragmentation. And that's to say, look, we have a state and we've had historically fights over who gets to be in charge of it, um, but those end up being really existential because each group really wants to be in charge and we have these very well-defined groups in society. So what we should do is to have the state be a little bit of a shell I mean, a lot of the most important decisions are governed at the level of a group. So in Lebanon, uh, the three most important groups are Shias, Sunnis, and Maronite Christians. And we're saying, all right, look, the Speaker of the House is always going to be a Maronite Christian, the President is always going to be a Shia, and the Prime Minister is always going to be a Sunni. I may have gotten this a little bit wrong. 
Um, and, you know, your laws for marriage, for divorce, for education, for all of those important personal things actually are governed at the level of a group you're a part of. You know, if you're a Shia, you're subject to these kinds of laws. If you're a Maronite Christian, you're subject to those kinds of laws. The problem with that... that that's the one that's inspired by the Dutch precedent, right? From the era of decolonization. Yeah, exactly. So it's sort of, um, it pre-exists the example, but then this um, political scientist, Arendt Leipart, sort of uh, seizes on it and says, this should be the model. And then it's exported to a bunch of other countries. By the way, as a political theorist, can you, um, this is a, I know it's going to be a difficult question, but can you pronounce the name of that theory? Oh, consociationalism. And no chance I can repeat this. Yeah, well done. <laughs> well done. I had a moment of trepidation. Um, nice. But, but, you know, Leipzig is a great example for why I don't buy this theory, because A, it has all kinds of injustices. So I have two friends from Lebanon, um, you know, like this guy that I met at a summer school years ago, and then suddenly I see his picture in the, in the, in the pages of a Guardian. I think, hey, what's he doing? He's marrying this beautiful woman. Um, what's going on? And why is there a story about him in the Guardian? Well, the answer is that we're both Lebanese, we met in New York, uh, but they're from different groups. Um, and they wanted their wedding to be respected in Lebanon, and the state would not register it because it just does not have provisions for members of different groups to marry each other. Because to sustain this scheme, you got to have people stay members of their own groups. What law is supposed to govern you if uh, you're members of different groups? And it's the groups that define the law of marriage and divorce and all of those kinds of things. So right? if the, if the dom uh, domination basically creates, enforces one perspective um, on everyone else, uh, the problem with fragmentation is that it ossifies group into their culture and traditions and doesn't allow for cross-cultural interaction and cross-pollination. Exactly. So it doesn't allow me to say, hey, I actually want to go and spend time with or marry somebody from a different group. It doesn't give me democratic control over the laws I'm subject to because there's a national parliament, but there's not a Sunni parliament and a Shia parliament. So if I want to change the law of divorce um, because it's unjust to women, for example, I don't really have a way of doing that. But the deepest problem is that Leipzig publishes a series saying, this is the solution to these deeply divided societies. This is how we keep the peace. This is how we avoid civil war. And three years later, Lebanon uh, starts a really bloody and protracted civil war. So because it doubles down on these identities over time, it doesn't actually deliver on its most fundamental promise, which is to avoid civil war. Right. And it, I guess it also kind of inhibits evolution, right? You're going to be less likely to evolve, change come up with new ideas that will gather more political support because you're always going to have your fixed base that's going to stay the same. Exactly. So LIPAP comes from benevolence, and in benevolence you used to have what's called a system of pillars, of polarization. So life really was very strongly determined by whether you were Catholic, Protestant, or liberal. Those were sort of the three main pillars. Um, you know, everything from which newspaper you read, which school you went to, what hospital you'd be treated in was informally organized around those pillars. But because it had a much less strong system of uh, uh, consociationalism, because it allowed people to evolve, today that is not so important in benevolence, right? It's not the defining thing for you, whether you're Catholic or Protestant or, uh, or, or liberal. And so um, that allows society to evolve and for that conflict to become less strong. And I think that's an important thing to think about in our context in the United States, which is that obviously some social conflicts do run along ethnic and religious lines. And obviously, we want to make sure, for example, that we uh, help minority groups overcome some of the injustices that they've historically suffered. We don't want to do it in such a way 
um, that it just sets in stone these lines of division and makes them stronger and stronger and makes us completely incapable of overcoming them over time. So, so to sum up, we have the danger of, of uh, essentially cultural authoritarianism. We have the danger of anarchy. And we have the danger of ba- just ba- being a, in a frozen form of cultural stasis where cross-pollination is not allowed or is not, it's just there's no political space for it. And that's, those are the scenarios that we are essentially afraid of if, if we don't find a new language or a new political approach for sustaining diversity in democracy. That's right. Are you ready to pounce? <laughs> not yet. My <laughs> challenge is still around the corner. <laughs> the thing is that I come from um, uncomfortable, um, just so publicly agreeing uh, with a guest, but um, <laughs> I, I was raised in Jerusalem and in Jerusalem, we, we experienced the, the cultural status quoism between secular and religious authority. And I always found that to be, um, some, and I've never had the word for it, but I think the, your concept of political fragmentation is exactly what it is. It's set in stone politically, a separation between secular culture, religious culture, and different religions as well, while also, I guess, defining um, certain hierarchical differences between them. And the fact that part of the political system, part of the political language of sustaining order in Jerusalem relied on these very uh, rigid categories didn't allow for fluidity and dynamism between the groups. And in Jerusalem, it's far less, um, you know, paradigmatic version of this problem than Lebanon. But this is my uh, own experience. So I know this is something that often gets ignored when talking about political diversity. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that example, but from, you know, the relatively little I know about Israel, that makes perfect sense. It's oh. especially even Jerusalem. It's a, it's a sub... Right. I mean, because... Tel Aviv is a whole right. different and, world. And, yeah. and if you look at right. Israel broadly politically, obviously it has a form of, of domination in a very literal sense. So mm. it's like it, it brings right. all... <laughs> all the problems of diversity. Mm-hmm. There's just one piece I think that we didn't address, which is um, also important in the, both in the Jerusalem status quoism and generally, because we point mm-hmm. out that the problem with fragmentation isn't just that it ossifies groups into their identity, um, at least as far as the political structure is concerned, but also that it gives cover for corruption. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so that's what you see very strongly in Lebanon, right? That because um, uh, the only way that you can run the society is basically as having these pretty immobile blocks that aren't very dynamic, that don't change very much, that are represented uh, by the elites from within each block. And so whereas, and, and Leipzig says this very clearly, he says, look, ideally, you know, the average Shia and the average Sunni and the average Maronite Christian never really talk to each other, never really have any kind of exchange. But then their leaders should be able to sit at a table together and hash things out and build up trust with each other because they're sort of, you know, in parliament together and they're negotiating together um, and and they sort of get along. Um, now, A, that's a pretty horrible vision for what a society looks like in general, but B, that obviously breeds corruption because that means, hey, here's the 10 leaders of the different groups sitting together, hashing things out. And one easy way to agree on is you get a million, I get a million, that guy over there gets a million and all of the people we represent get screwed. So I think it's really a natural result of this. And when you look at, um, you know, things like the terrible explosion in the harbor of uh, Beirut and, and and the deep ossification of, of, of Lebanon's political system, it, 
it's connected to to this supposed fix to to the divisions in that society. So kind of drawing parallels, I guess, to the United States, it seems to me that we might potentially be on this this track towards that third trap that you were talking about, this kind of ossifying identities, particularly when you think about what you said earlier about our politics and our culture dangerously aligning into ways that might ossify groups' identities and lead us into division. I mean, is that is that how you would diagnose what's happening in the U.S. right now? Yeah, so I think we have forms of each of these dangers today. So I think, um, you know, the idea that we have structured anarchy might seem far-fetched because we have a very functional state, we have a giant military, we have a big federal budget. Um, but we see, for example, from studies from around the world that the more uh, salient ethnic and religious diversity we have, the harder it is to sustain a welfare state. So in some countries, as diversity has increased, people have started to support welfare state spending less. And that's certainly uh, a challenge in the United States. But we might say, well, why should we you know, m- pay for child benefits if you know those kinds of people, in quotation mark, are going to get the benefit, not my kind of people? So that's, that's, that's one challenge. Um, the second challenge is certainly uh, there are still some forms of domination that structure our reality. And there are some people who would like to double down on them to, to, to reintroduce some of them. So, so we certainly have to make sure that we don't end up excluding groups. Um, and that's a hard challenge, but I agree with you that perhaps, uh, uh, the most obvious and salient challenge is this third one is one where we say, Hey, you are so defined by the group you are a member of and the institutions of society encourage you to think of yourself to such an extent as white or black or Asian American or Latino, um, that 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 we sort of split society into these four or five rival tribes, but have some uneasy peace between them uh, that gets harder and harder to sustain with every single year. And I think that there are some developments, especially, frankly, among the American elite, uh, frankly, among uh, people, you know, often in my kinds of circles, um, uh, university professors and people at think tanks and foundations and so on, who are really uh, uh, increasing that danger. So one one example for this is when I when I think about um, what's now the case in many elite private schools in the United States, at Central Friends in D.C., at Dalton and Horace Mann in New York City, um, where there's going to be a teacher coming into the classroom at the age of 10 or 8 or 6 and telling kids, hey, the most important thing about you is your skin color, and now we're going to split you into groups of African-Americans and Latinos and Asian-Americans and whites and talk to you about injustices in the country and so on. And it's good to raise consciousness about injustices. It's good to talk honestly about the state of our society. But when you do it in such a way that you're from the top down communicating to children, the most important thing about you is your is the color of your skin, and that's how you should organize it's not likely that we're going to build more solidarity. It's likely that we're going to activate all of those in-group favoritism and out-group discrimination mechanisms that we've been talking about at the beginning of our conversation. And that's especially true for whites. So there's now good emerging data that when you tell uh, uh, white people how privileged they are and how much they're defined by their race and how much they should give up uh, those advantages, they actually become more discriminatory, not less discriminatory. And so the idea that something's good going to come from taking these 10-year-old kids and trying to raise in them the consciousness of a white identity and turning them into committed anti-racists in that kind of way, I think is just very short-sighted and very naive and does really run the danger of 
fragmenting our society in this way. Now, I will also say something else, which is that at the same time, when I look at what our society actually looks like in the breadth of it, away from these political developments, away from what I think is the misguided pedagogy in some schools, it's really positive. Um, you know, when I was born, a majority of Americans, and, you know, I'm 39, um, a majority of Americans, a clear majority of Americans, still thought that interracial marriage is immoral. You used to have about one in 33 kids being mixed race. Today, the number of Americans who think that interracial marriage is immoral is down in the single digits. Um, and you have about one in uh, seven, one in six kids who are who are interracial, so, um, uh, or who are mixed race. So the... You know, um, uh, actually, there are lots more friendships, lots more relationships, lots more business partnerships, lots more contacts being created between different ethnic groups in the United States every day. When I look at what's going on in the heart of society, I don't see that fragmentation. I actually see a process of defragmentation. But I worry about the way in which our political conflicts and the ideas of some influential people in America might actually push us back towards a kind of polarization. Um and what do you think about my more abstract concern that the the culture warism, which can you know derive a lot of its energy from racial, ethnic, or, or even gendered concerns, but ultimately revolves around political identities, can lead to the degree of fragmentation that we're seeing in in more hyper. Um, um, hostile and fractured nations. Yeah, so one way that I'm thinking about reality at the moment is that we have a kind of cultural civil war of the elites. And one of the questions, but actually a lot of the trends in the last decades in the heart of American society have been positive. People are much more tolerant than they were. There's actually much more integration. At the but, to, but tolerant of what? You see the tolerance, you've mentioned some degree of progress around race, some degree of progress around accepting immigrants. But can you say the same thing about your political group or tribe? Because if you look at the statistics, you find a lot more no. tolerance of intermarriage between different races and different nationalities and different religions than between uh, different political parties. Yeah, that's true. There's some interesting studies on that. So just, just to finish my basic model, I think this is cultural civil war of the elites. And then the question is whether they're going to manage to impose that on the rest of society. Now, I think that's also somewhat true in politics. When you look at the policy preferences of ordinary citizens, they're actually pretty sensible and they're um, uh, you know, not moderate in the sense of always being in the middle of politics, but it's quite sensible. You know, like a lot of Americans uh, want much tougher gun regulation. A lot of Americans want more of a welfare state on certain key issues. Um, a lot of Americans would want a child benefit, for example. But a lot of Americans also reject the idea that we should defund the police or that we shouldn't make sure that, that we're capable of actually punishing criminals. So I agree. The one point on which I'm quite conservative is that I agree with this old idea that I'd rather be ruled by the first hundred people in the Cambridge telephone book than the assembled Harvard faculty members. With politics, <laughs> many friends who are Harvard faculty. Um, and I think if you want to be a small D Democrat, you have to believe that. If you actually want to believe in democracy, you got to believe as opposed to an aristocracy. That, uh, a majority of Americans. Yeah, but a majority of Americans are actually capable of responding to decent moral reasons that are decent people. Mm. Now. Having said all of that, it is true that there is a, a deep political polarization that is much less strong among ordinary people than among elites, but that has uh, affected all of society. And there's two really st starting facts about that. The first is that in the 1960s, Americans didn't care whether their child would marry a spouse of 
uh, of a different political party, but they certainly did care if a child wanted to marry a spouse of a different race. And in some parts of America, of course, it was still illegal in the 1960s. Um, uh, today, uh, that is reversed. So people are much more likely to dislike the idea of a child mm-hmm. uh, marrying uh, the out party <laughs> than marrying somebody of a different race. Yes. Um, and there's also another really interesting study where they had uh, these people in the lab um, choose scholarships for for students, right? And so they could give out two scholarships of five students or whatever, right? Um, and they manipulated the CVs a little bit. And so there was two ways in which they manipulated them. One indicated their political leaning. So the kid was the president of a you know high school Democrat club or the high school Republican club. And one indicated their GPA, right? Just as a matter of objective or more or less objective um, uh, merit. And then the third was um, by race. So there was some marker which clearly indicated whether somebody was white or black. Um, uh, and it turns out that there was a little bit of in-group discrimination on ethnic lines. Not very much at all. Um, among Democrats, I believe there was none at all. Um, uh, or perhaps even outgroup discrimination on, on that particular uh, uh, metric. Um, but there's very strong partisan identification. So, uh, you know, whites were not significantly less likely to give a scholarship to a black kid, but Democrats were way less likely to give a scholarship to somebody who's a Republican and vice versa. You know, it's interesting when you were giving your example of earlier of the the teachers separating the students to teach them about you know race and anti racism. I was actually kind of surprised that you were you were marketing the divisions in our country along racial lines and like giving that as an example of the ways that we're dividing races. Because for me, I I thought you were going to say that the division is much more along cultural and political lines, like elite uh, uh, elite coastals. And, or urbanites, if you will, and like non-urbanites and more conservatives. And for me, that example of the school is 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 potentially more applicable to that division because you have, uh, I'm imagining that the teachers, the educational systems are part of these urban elites that are enforcing kind of their racial ideologies into the education states, uh, educational system to create children that are thinking in these ways. And if you're going to get any pushback, it's from families who don't necessarily ascribe to those political, cultural uh, alignments. And then you're going to get more of this settling out where those people are potentially going to leave the cities and go to go to other places, maybe smaller cities or more ur- suburban places where they won't have to deal with that. Or to Florida. Or to, right, right, to Florida, to where they don't have to deal with those kinds of um, in- institutional values being pushed on their children. So I'm, I'm just curious if, if, if you kind of agree with me that it, it potentially could align to that fragmentation as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, here's an example, which may seem unconnected, but I think really is making the same point. Uh, I read a report a couple of days ago, yet another report about why on earth are Hispanics all voting for the Republican Party now? I mean, they're not all voting for the Republican Party. Most will vote for the Democratic Man. Party. Media really don't get Hispanics. They really it's don't It's incredible. <laughs> it's just nuts. And so what does the report say? You know, this is like funded by the big Democratic players and sort of, you know, this is like a key part of the Democratic Party's attempt to like stop them from voting for Donald Trump in 2024, which, if you ask me, is a pretty important cause. And what do they say? Well, they've just all fallen for racialized misinformation, which basically is saying they're just racist and dumb. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, we have to authentically engage with them, uh, even as it's talking, uh, referring to them as Latinx. Now, if you want to authentically engage with Latinos, and I know this point has been made a million times, it's kind of boring, 
start by not calling them something that 98% of Hispanics in the country dislike, which is the term Latinx, mm -hmm. right? But it's just yeah. this idea that, like, Hispanics should be people of color um, and, and think of themselves in these terms um, and, uh, you know, if they're not, then it must be that they're sort of idiots and they're misunderstanding something. It's just that is not how Hispanics think of themselves. Um, their political interests, first of all, are that of most Americans. They want to earn more money and um, not pay too much, uh, you know, for gas and housing and so on. And, and, and they just want to have a good life. That's the most important thing. We see that in, in all of the polls. And then there's really complicated racial politics uh, within the very, very diverse groups of Hispanics. Um, you know, mm -hmm. there was this really sort of slightly odd, I, I found it horribly racializing, but also interesting Pew study where, you know, they, Pew asked uh, Hispanic respondents to rate themselves on a color gradient of how white or black they oh, are. Goodness. And there's like a little, a little like chart with like the 10 Woo! different... The hands, yeah, the, the hand colored hands. Like yeah, that was great. But it turns out that oh by far and away, the most common response was the second most white one. Wow. Right? So most Hispanics think of themselves as, as pretty white. And there are deep divisions, deep discrimination within the Hispanic community against native uh, Latin Americans, for example, and so on. So this idea that you can look at this you know, huge group of Hispanics, which is, you know, they're all people of color who naturally share interests with these other completely different people we're also calling people of color. And and that means we're always going to vote for the Democratic Party. It's just really nuts. And so, you know, to, to, yeah. to speak to what I'm saying, Vanessa, that is something that, you know, among the American elite is a really strong ideology that we can divide America into whites and people of color, and that explains a lot. And by the way, that's something that a lot of my friends and acquaintances who are more on the left think. It's also what Tucker Carlson mm. thinks in a different kind of way, right? He's threatened by that, right. and my friends think that that's going to be wonderful for the country. They both actually share the same underlying belief. A lot of ordinary Americans don't, and they don't want to think about the country that way. Um, and so, yeah, I agree that this is something that's taught at Dalton and, and Horace Mann and Sidwell Friends, it's not actually how most Americans think of themselves. And I think it's good that most Americans don't think of themselves that way. Because if they did, we'd be in a lot more trouble. From the Democratic Party, sorry, from the Republican side, the whole gerrymandering arms race comes from their own subscribing into the idea that, you know, democracy is destiny and that they are basically bound to be extinct uh, by 2030 or something. And therefore, if they don't lock in control right now, they're doomed. Yeah, so this is what I call the, the most dangerous idea in American politics. Look, Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives basically agree on nothing today. And I, you'd think I'd be heartened that they can agree on anything. But sadly, the one like really big theory about America that they agree on is both empirically wrong and belief in it is really dangerous and misleading. And that is this idea uh, that uh, demography is destiny, as you were saying, and that, uh, you know, uh, 30 years from now, the Democrats will have this emerging, or as it's increasingly called, inevitable political majority. Now, this drives right nuts and crazy, right? So when you look at um, Michael Anton, really influential essayist who later became a senior advisor in the Trump White House in 2016, he's saying, the problem today is that, I quote, sees this importation of third world foreigners, end quote, who, you know, hate the Republic and they hate the Republican Party, and they're going to doom us. And so that's why we should put Trump in charge, because Trump may not know how to run the country and it may mess everything up. But unless we stop this right now, our chances are doomed forever anyway. Right. So that's demographic panic on the right. 
So then you have to. That's the flight ninety three election argument, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's in that in that essay. It's really fascinating essay. I, I recommend everybody read it, not because it's pleasant or because I agree with it, but because it really shows you a mindset. And yeah, and I, I'll just add that the, the part of the mindset is not just the the impending doom. It's like also kind of set the trend for the the past elections, where if we lose this election, this is it for us. We are we are we are. It's an existential crisis. It's the last time we have a chance of winning re-elections because otherwise, yes. afterwards the demographic forces will be even more arrayed. This may be the final election, which is by a, a rhetorical game that Democrats have adopted as well. Well, for, on the demographic, so so they sort of worry that the next election may no longer be may no longer be fair, right? Which which I mean, there's there's I think some more reason to worry about. But then on the Democratic side, on the demographic question, there's this triumphalism, right? So there's all this article in NPR and Vox and so on, 2016, saying. Hillary Clinton can't possibly not lose because there's now enough people of color that just mathematically we're always going to win. And by the way, by 2045, we're kind of just going to be majority minority and all these minorities are voting for us. So by that time, we're definitely going to win. Now, that's also dangerous because it makes Democrats deeply complacent, right? That's what's saying, hey, Hispanics should be voting for us. So why are they not? Must be misinformation. I mean, this, 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 this reminds me, I haven't thought about this before, this, I just thought about this a second this reminds me of, of, of increasingly desperate attempts by Marxists in the beginning of the 20th century to explain why we haven't had socialist revolution everywhere yet. Why it's like, oh, there must be like some even more complicated mechanism <laughs> by which these inevitable forces of history are being thwarted. You know, they, there are no inevitable mechanisms of history. So if you believe that we just have to wait and mobilize the right people and victory is going to fall into our lap, that's dangerous. That allows the other side to win. Right. But it's also just a really dystopian vision of what the future might look like. I don't want to live in an America in 2045 where I can walk down uh, the street and guess who somebody's voting for by the color of their skin. Well, this assumes that I would then vote for a Republican Party. I don't want to vote for a Republican Party. Um, and even if that means that Democrats win every election and that might be good, um, uh, uh, it still means that you know 47% of the population is going to be whites who are disenfranchised at every election, who lose every election. Um, and uh, uh, and who have a lot of guns and who have a lot of power. So this is not a positive vision for 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 what this country would look like that anybody should want. Now, thankfully, it's not actually reflecting reality. And the 2020 election was really interesting in that regard because the only reason why Donald Trump was competitive in the 2020 election is that he very significantly boosted his share of the vote among every non-white voter groups, among African-Americans, among Asian-Americans, particularly among Latinos. And the only reason why Joe Biden is the legitimately elected 46th president of the United States is that he uh, significantly increased the share of the vote among white voters relative to Hillary Clinton four years ago. But, but you've touched on the, the scary thing. Um, when I mentioned Democrats are also adopting some of that rhetoric, they have they have adopted this, I think, even before um, the current push on the Republican side to truly rig the election in a, in a true sense, John Eastman style. But the point is that there is a constant gerrymandering arms race that partly originates in the demography's destiny approach, but is becoming you know, separate to it and is becoming just focused on politics. And that terrifies me because it, you can see how it really is a process of constant escalation on both sides. Yeah, and so what's really interesting about the gerrymandering is that um, for a long time, gerrymandering w gave Republicans a real advantage, in part because they were a little bit more ruthless about it, in part just because they had more power at the state level, so they were more able to be ruthless. Um, now, uh, because 
this gerrymandering cycle is really influenced by the 2018 electoral results, and they were very positive for Democrats. Um, and because I think Democrats are becoming more ruthless, um, uh, they've sort of countersteered. And so at this point, uh, gerrymandering does not give a systemic advantage to either Democrats or Republicans in the upcoming election, according to a whole host of analyses. Right. So this is a lot of people really studied this in detail, all agreeing on this. Um, so you could think, hey, it's not a problem. In the past, they gave one party an advantage, and now it doesn't. It's still a huge problem because, uh, first of all, it's just absurd when you look at the shapes of these districts where, you know, they, they make you laugh or cry. Um, secondly, uh, it uh, robs people of real choice because it means that the vast majority of Americans live in really uncompetitive districts and the legislators are choosing their own voters rather than us choosing our legislators. But thirdly, it is pushing our politics to the extremes because instead of elections being decided in the general election in a tight competition between two different political parties, they are decided in hyper-partisan primaries in which the winner of that primary is virtually certain to go on to win the general election. And that uh, is a real problem. So yes, thankfully, it's good that we no longer have a partisan lean but but for American politics, that's still a really deep right. Which means the mo- but about the primary, obviously, the result is that the most uh, crazy uh, uh, voice that appeals to the base is the one that's ba- that's going to win because the people who go and vote in primaries aren't the general public or not even the general voters of a certain parties, but the people who really have the political motivation to go and vote for their representative, which usually would go for the crazier, more partisan voice. Adam, I was going to ask if you wanted to switch you to your question that you want to ask, because I don't want you to forget it. Yes, 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 yes. yes. (laughs) So you make a strong case for liberal democracy, which is a subject that we often get to on this podcast. But you start with articulating exactly what you think the role of a state should be. You argue there that, especially given the context of diversity, that the role of a liberal democratic state should be to facilitate the freedom of essentially the freedom of conscience, which is, you know, to to think, feel, believe, express and fuck whoever and whatever you want. And it's the state's role to protect the individual from having their rights infringed upon by the state itself. That is by people in power. But then you also add a very um, you know, revealing argument that this is insufficient in itself. Um, you know, it's not merely a libertarian formulation of protection, but also a state needs to be uh, protecting the individual from the potential oppression of its own group. If a group has certain practices that are restrictive, that, are, that, that limit an individual's freedom to maybe exit the group, like Jewish Orthodox society, or if the, the community enforces certain violent practices on the individual that they can't opt out from, then the state should be, the liberal state should be responsible to intervene and prevent that. Um, and this is where I had my question, because you also make a part of your argument for where we should be uh, putting our energies politically and culturally is finding a shared purpose as a country, a shared identity, things that unite us, find shared goals, shared meaning. Um, but for a lot of people, there, as you point out yourself, their shared meaning are derived from their groups, from their cultures, their communities, whether they're religious, ethnic, or separate nationalities. The problem is, <laughs> what if 
for a lot of people, those shared nationalities are defined around forms of oppression. What if oppression, to some extent, is the secret sauce of having group purpose and a shared meaning? Because one of the complaints or criticisms of a liberal democracy is overemphasizing liberty and the freedom of a person to define themselves is that it loses the substance of identity. If everything goes, then nothing matters. You can find your shared meaning around baseball or around other generic voluntary associations, but then you lose the glue that actually makes people feel committed and meaningful and purposeful in their group. So mm. that's my challenge. But that's a great question, yeah. So um, look, so, so there's a communitarian criticism of, of, of liberalism, which... Uh, is somewhat similar to yours, but I think it's different in an important respect because I think your question is much more honest. Um, so the communitarian criticism of liberalism often is to say, look, you liberals like to talk as though we were all just uh, choosing your own menu of life, you know, as though the decision whether to honor your parents or the decision whether to worship is the same as my decision tonight after this interview whether to, uh, you know, order pizza or sushi from DoorDash. Um, and that's just not how people live, Right they are born into these networks of people who they have deep obligations to. They are born, you know, they're raised to believe that they have these deep diktats of conscience towards their religious group. And so this is why this individualist liberal notion of how to run a state, which just rights and obligations of individuals, really doesn't work. And you guys just don't respect groups. You don't respect religion. You don't respect those kind of kinship networks. That's the problem with liberalism, right? So that's a sort of classical mm. argument here. And so it would also kind of not respect maybe like working class or lower class folks that don't have the ability to access that level of choice. Right. There's also a, choice, a question of like how, how, how much choice argument. do you have? How, how much actual substantive mm -hmm. choice do you have? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And so the answer to that uh, is, is twofold. It's to say, well, look, um, no, we don't uh, expect everybody to completely change their conception of life once they turn 18 we know that most people are going to continue to be in touch with their families and to have obligations towards them and to feel that that's something that they didn't really choose. That is just part of how they grew up and how their life is always going to go. We know that most people have religious beliefs that match that of their parents um, and are at least to some extent going to remain members of those religious communities. And that all is fine. In fact, it is precisely the most fundamental liberal values which make sure in a diverse society that all of us can live up to those. Because you might have one set of obligations and I might have another set of obligations only because we have a freedom of worship and the freedom of association and those basic liberal rights, but we're each going to be able to, to, to live those out. So liberals aren't opposed to groups, they're not opposed to religion. In fact, it is precisely our recognition of the centrality of them which accounts for the way we specify the basic rights of the individual. Which, 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 which are strongly to do with that. But, and here's my objection to that kind of communitarian conception, it's my more direct response to Adam's question, there are also going to be some people who want to leave the society uh, they're in or the, the group they're in. There are going to be some people who say, hey, my parents say I have all these obligations to them, but actually they were abusive. They treated me terribly. I don't like the way they live, and I want to go no contact with them. I want to go and lead my own life. 
right? There's going to be some people who say, hey, no, I was raised in a religion which says that sex before marriage is a sin and uh, I'm supposed to consult my parents on who I'm going to marry. But you know what? I'm 20 years old and I'm falling in love and I want to go and date this person. I want to have sex with them and I don't want to be afraid that my parents are going to beat me up or send me to conversion therapy or murder me or do all kinds of other terrible things that actually do happen in our society from time to time, right? Uh, and so at that point, uh, my answer is just, yeah, you have a clash of values, right? You have a vision of society which says tradition and groups and religion is so important that they should be allowed to force people um, to remain members of them. Uh, you know, that's because really important things are at stake. Going to heaven rather than hell is at stake. Then there's another conception which says, look, I'm sorry, but one of the obligations of a state is not just to protect groups and individuals from the state and from a tyrannical majority. It's also to protect members of those groups against their own group when it becomes necessary. It's also to say you can escape what Donald Samoglu and James Robinson called the cage of norms. You are able to leave your own group if you so choose. Most people won't. But if you choose to leave your own group in that kind of way, we got to make sure that you're able to do that. Right, but this is this is where we get into conflict, and or uh, I think into the the worthy discussion is is the cage of norms essential? So you're saying offer a way to opt out. The state should facilitate opting mm-hmm. out. And I, I was involved in Jerusalem in many groups that allowed for, that, that tried to create a path for people to exit the Orthodox society if they were gay or if they were women who wanted to escape their husbands. I, so I, I know how difficult it is to create those facilities. And sometimes you actually need to secure their physical safety because their community might actually try to come after them. Um, but where do you draw this line? Because first of all, just giving the right to exit a group is already difficult and obscure enough, but, but let's accept it uh, at face value. But what about circumcision or female genital mutilation? Are those things that the state should be involved in? Where do you draw the line of what's acceptable in group oppression and what isn't? Yeah, so let's, let's, uh, let, let's first of all start with this. So what are the two different models here, right? So one model is, hey, groups should be able to oppress. Or they should be able to actually tell the members what to do. Um, without which I argue the group doesn't really exist as a group. And to say that you can derive meaning from that group just on the abstract of, and I, I don't know that I fully believe that, but I'm, I'm mm. leaning hard into this argument just to, right. to see your reactions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But my point is that if you give up on all, all the norms and just uh, follow the abstract of, of, of an ideal identity, then you're no longer you know, Jewish, you're uh, reform, which is basically... Christian right, right. Protestant. Well, but, <laughs> well but, but, okay, so, so let me say two things about this. So the first is, uh, look, I just believe that at that point, the group is no longer worthwhile. I, I, I think that there are many groups that have deep meaning around the world, um, but that one of the preconditions of being sufficiently just that we should pay you respect is that you don't coerce your members. And actually... Uh, you know, America is a society in which people have great individual freedom and can go and do whatever they want. And yet there's a thriving Orthodox Jewish community. I actually currently live in one in Midwood. I mean, there's Orthodox Jews all around where I am in Midwood. They all have the right to go, you know, five steps on the Q train and go to a nightclub, and they don't. Um, uh, you know, so I don't. I just don't think empirically that it is true that in a society that gives people those rights, uh you know, thick groups with thick obligations on their members are doomed to cease existing. Actually, I think America has historically been great for these kinds of groups. 
I'm in B when you think about how to make a diverse society work. I just don't think it's going to work if you don't give people that individual freedom. Because then groups are going to start to say, we're going to impose our views on everybody else, uh, and that's going to be a real disaster. Now, there's going to be hard cases, right? And so, you know, I think there's a sort of idea in philosophy sometimes. It's an interesting methodological point about philosophy, if, 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 if your listeners will indulge my political theorizing for a second, where people think, look, if you have the right conception of a world, then there shouldn't be any hard cases, right? Like once you have the right principles about some question, then it should just always be obvious what you should do in the world because the principles tell you what to do. And that's not actually the case. Um, the right principles should point to the competing considerations. But there's still going to be hard cases where you say, hey, this is like so much in the middle where like from one value we hold, we should do X, but from the other value we hold, we should do Y. And the standard is, do our principles explain in the right way how to maneuver that kind of situation? So female genital mutilation and circumcision are really difficult uh, cases because, uh, especially in the case of circumcision, it is uh, historically a marker of a belonging in a community. It is a religious duty, um, but it does also uh, uh, alter the body of young children in a way that's uh, unchangeable and irreparable and that they don't choose, right? So for me here, the question is, is there a compelling interest of a child in being able to make that decision them, themselves? And I think a lot of the question of that um, goes back to whether uh, this uh, infringes with a sexual liberty in a very significant way. Um, you know, we give people, children braces, we, we do all kinds of permanent aesthetic alterations to them that they can't undo. As long as there's no compelling interest at stake, that's perfectly fine, but falls into the realm of decisions parents can make for their children. When you talk about forms of female genital mutilation, which make it hard to orgasm, which make it hard to enjoy a sexual life, that is obviously unacceptable. Uh, for me, the question of circumcision turns in part on the empirical question of whether it actually very significantly reduces uh, the sexual pleasure that, that a male child is going to be able to experience later in life. There's some people who make the argument that it does. Um, I haven't looked into it deeply enough. I'm a little skeptical of that argument. Um, uh, but, but, but I think that's what, that's what it'll in part turn on. Uh, but absolutely, in the case of female genital mutilation, yeah, I'm sorry. This, I, I know this is a traditional uh, custom in many communities. It's a deeply ingrained custom. It's something that people feel passionately about. It's not easy to tell people you're going to go to jail if you do this to a child. Um, but I'm sorry. Uh, that is not something that you get to do to a baby. Um, uh, and it's one of the obligations of a state to make sure that uh, girls do not have uh, uh, their own decisions in life curtailed in, in this extreme way. Your point about the Orthodox communities in Jersey, I, th I, th I think, still belies the argument a little bit, because if you're, I, I mean, I, I know a, a number of people who exited from New York area Orthodox communities, and they are, you know, that was a very difficult process because there was still a lot of cultural coercion. They didn't, they weren't just able to go on a subway at will because the impact of psychological coercion is ingrained and profound. You don't need to constantly threaten to burn people's apartments down to know what the cost of either ostracism or even just, you know, the, the risk to your soul might be by leaving. So is that kind of coercion legitimate or not? That's question one, and I'm going to just cram in another one because we're um, coming close to your um, leaving time. And my second question is, so you're basically admitting, I, I, I assume, that, or acknowledging that part of 
Uh, I haven't admitted anything. Uh, I may right, have acknowledged right. it, but the, what, I haven't admitted anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, you may or may not have acknowledged that it is um, within the purview, or even maybe the the duty of a liberal society to, to some extent, dilute um, the power of the uh, community, or at least to soften its edges. Well, to make sure that it's not oppressive, to make yes. sure that it doesn't violate the rights of its members. And to the extent that this harms the integrity of the group, it is still necessary to be done to sustain a true liberal society. Yes, but I think there's lots of very, very thick groups in our societies that don't coerce their members in those kinds of ways, uh, and then we should respect. So I don't think that we should have a general... Uh, preference for, if you want to distinguish between thinner and thicker groups. I think, you know, lots of people live within very thick groups. Um, and that's great. That's wonderful. As long as they're doing that in a voluntary way, I don't think we should be worried about that. That can be... But not all groups Not all groups necessarily deserve the dignity of a liberal democracy. Um, no. I mean, if a group is, uh, uh, you know, let's take an imaginary extreme example of a group is sacrificing every fifth child on, on an altar <laughs> and... Uh, you know, doing all kinds of horrible things to the members of them and beating anybody who criticizes its leader up and so on, then we should then we shouldn't have respect. No. So so the you know the 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 only precondition uh for your group to enjoy respect in our society is that you accord other groups the same respect that you want to be accorded. But it doesn't mean you have to you have to love them or you have to think they're wonderful. Um it just means that you allow them to coexist. Um, and that uh, you don't coerce your members, that you're able to attract members um, who are willing to to remain part of it of their own free accord or to join it of their own free accord. Um, so, so, so those are the two uh, basic preconditions. So you had, uh, what was the first question you had? I just, that there's still psychological coercion. Oh, now, um, uh, you know, leaving a group is always going to be hard. Um and you can think about what forms of psychological coercion are legitimate, what forms of psychological coercion are not legitimate. Um, uh, but, you know, the fact that it's going to be hard, the fact that, um, you know, your parents may no longer want to talk to you, um, that is a hard reality where we probably can't get around. Um, you know, parents don't have a duty to talk to their child. Um, and if they think that the child that doesn't follow them, their religious beliefs, is not worthy of being talked to, I find that tragic and terrible. But that's not something the state can do something about. What the state can ensure is that you get the education uh, to make uh, meaningful choices. You have to, Vanessa's question earlier, the socioeconomic preconditions, that if you're cast out by your community, you're not immediately thrown into abject poverty. Um, and you don't have to uh, worry against uh, about physical coercion um, uh, or other threats to, to your direct well-being. Um, you know, that's still going to give communities all kinds of ways to keep many of the members part of it because they don't want to right. disappoint the parents because they're used to living in mm-hmm. a particular community because it's scary to change your style of life. And even though I, I feel for the people uh, who that impacts, that's that's fine. That's that's part of what it is to grow up in some yeah. community. But what we can make sure is to is to ensure that you have to get enough secular education that you can go and be an independent citizen in the world. Um, you have the material preconditions to um, have a social safety net if you want to really change your your society. And you're not afraid about goons turning up at the doorstep and beating you up. 
Okay, so I, I just my, my follow up to this is just you you tell the story of how you've shifted from being raised as um, from a family of Holocaust survivors in Germany and, and somebody who believes very much in the international vision of humanity and, and very cynical about nationalism and patriotism. And I think that's that was a common sentiment among young Germans at the time, which makes sense considering the, the history, having seen the darkest form that nationalism can take. But you describe how you've turned into somebody who is a little more open to the importance of patriotic feelings in order to sustain a healthy, vibrant democracy. So what I was wondering as I read this, um, your, your acceptance of some form of civic as opposed to ethnic uh, patriotism and, and maybe nationalism, is your acceptance or tepid embrace of of this necessity, is it accepting the human condition, accepting that these feelings are essential to the human experience, or do you see it as a more utilitarian concession? As in, right now, societies still need that sort of tacky glue in order to sustain uh, democratic cohesion, but ultimately it's just a stepping stone to the ultimate universal humanist vision that you once held in other words are you fully converted or are you more like the conversos of spain still secretly holding on to their jewish beliefs um i would make the distinction between what political theory is called ideal and non-ideal theory mm. um so ideal theory is sort of you know in a world of angels in which we could have everybody uh you know always being motivated by the best possible thing would we have something like patriotism Perhaps not. Um, I'm not sure. Um, but we live in non-ideal theory, mm -hmm. right? We live in a world in which people have a psychological makeup that they do. And part of that psychological makeup is to uh, really uh, be drawn to, to groups. And in a deeply ethnically and religiously diverse society, for me, this means we're always going to have those communities you just talked about, Adam. I really don't think... Uh, that, uh, you know, because we give people the liberty to leave a group, suddenly there's no longer going to be any Jews, there's no, no longer going to be any Christians, and there's no longer going to be any Amish. That just isn't what the world seems to look like. People have these really strong group identities. But precisely because of that, we then also need something that goes above that. We also need something that allows people to say, hey, I might be, uh, you know, a Hispanic guy living in LA, and you might be a black Muslim woman living in Michigan, and this person might be a wasp living in you know, Vermont, uh, but actually we're rooting for the same team at the Olympics. Actually, we are capable of sustaining a welfare state together. Actually, we're, we're willing to defend our country together, as we're seeing uh, millions of patriotic Ukrainians do bravely um, uh, on the news every day at the moment. And so that's why, uh, you know, as a German Jew, uh, patriotism did not come naturally to me, but I have started to embrace the notion of patriotism one that rejects ethnic ties as the foundation of our patriotic uh, 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 sentiment, but says that it's obviously not limited uh, to just being having the same ethnicity. That's not what makes it meaningful. One that is based on civic patriotism, on the constitution and our common civic values, but that also has a strong cultural element that recognizes that actually a lot of Americans who say they love the country do so because they love its sights and smells and sounds, um, its landscapes, its cities, um, its ways of doing things, its cultural scripts, its celebrities, its TikTok stars. And that is actually a, a dynamic 
a naturally diverse culture which is looking towards the future rather than the past. Um, and we shouldn't be afraid of embracing that. So, Yash, I want to ask you for our last question, something we ask, try to ask all of our guests when we can think about it in time. What do you think are the biggest blind spots on the left and the right? Well, I think ironically, the biggest blind spot is actually the same on the left and the right at the moment, which is to say that the right has become deeply pessimistic about the state of a great experiment, about the state of our diverse societies, saying, for example, that all of these immigrants from Mexico and El Salvador and so on aren't integrating, aren't succeeding, they're somehow inferior and all of that kind of stuff. Now, the left rejects that attribution of blame, but it actually is similarly pessimistic about the state of our society. It might say that all these immigrants from Mexico and El Salvador can't succeed in the way that Italian and Irish Americans did 100 years ago because our society is so racist, so discriminatory, that they never have a chance. Now, there is racism, there is discrimination in our society, there's lots of problems, but actually the best studies show that immigrants from those countries today are um, rising the socioeconomic ranks, are succeeding at about the same speed as Italian and Irish uh, Americans did 100 years ago. Um, and so uh, I think that, um, you know, a lot of people have a starting point when thinking about diverse democracies where they say it should be really easy, but look at all the problems we have. So we're terrible and we should now become pessimistic. The movement of my book is the other way around. I think once you look at this topic in detail, you realize that it is really hard. It's really hard to make this stuff work. Um, but actually, by comparison to how hard it is, we're doing really well. We've made real progress. And, and purely politically, we're only going to manage to convince people to embrace this uh, uh, diverse democracies, to embrace the project of, of what my book calls The Great Experiment, if we have an optimistic vision of a kind of society we could all live together in to offer. And so that's what I try to do. Yashas, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for indulging us in our devil advocacy, by the way. No, no, that's great. No, I really <laughs> enjoyed that. Thank you. That was great. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are UncertainPod on the social media when we are on social media, which is infrequent. Um, but you can share us with your friends and enemies, which will be a great support. Thank you. And until next time, stay sane.